Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's editor, Vivian Kelly. Hello. Senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And our reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hi. This week, we will be talking about Growth Ops founder Steps Down. Ben Lilly acquires McCann Australia. Married at first sight. MKR. Survivor. Who's winning the ratings war? And why Carl Stefanovic has been a very naughty boy. So let's get straight into it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sounding a bit coldy this week, but I'm 100%, no, 90% sure it's not the coronavirus. Oh, so we're I don't know if the 10% risk is one that yeah. I, is a good one. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just saying it's very low. No, 85%. 80 at the most percent risk that it's the coronavirus. So we're all good. So let's get straight into it. Um, twists and turns at Growth Ops again with founder Philip Kingston leaving the company's board. So according to the ASX announcement, it was because of a successful transition of the new board and management. I hope you heard the quote marks around the word successful there. It also came as the in the same week that there were more troubles at uh, the Philip Kingston aligned Sargon Capital, which has been all over the financial press this week. Now, um, for those who have momentarily forgotten what Growth Ops is, it's the organisation that includes what used to be AJF, amongst other things. Um, and you might remember that Philip Kingston came on the Umbrella Cast a few weeks uh, back now and chatted to Vivian and I and insisted that all was going to be well at Tremantium Growth Ops. Um, Hannah, you reported this latest twist. So although he's a shareholder, this is sort of the end of Philip Kingston as, as a boss, really, of uh, of Growth Ops. Yeah, so in that uh, reshuffle that he's saying went very successfully and that's why he's now leaving, uh, he moved from a non-executive board role to uh, – from an executive board role, sorry, to a non-executive board role – and now he is stepping down from the board entirely. He does still own, we believe, a 19 to 20% share of the business, which it's not clear yet whether he's going to sell out completely. Um, not that he'd get much for it. I was going to say maybe the given their current the share price, that might not be a great choice. Um, but, yeah, he is stepping away. He um, gave a very good quote in which he said he had a lot of other things going on in his other businesses, uh, specifically, as I enter a busy period related to my other business interests and with the handover now complete, the timing is right for my resignation from the board. Presumably, he's referring to Sargon in that. Um, yes, Sargon. So Sargon is um, kind of focuses on the super industry, so not not quite so much in our world, although it does have a bit of a relationship with growth ops, which has you know, previously been declared in the annual report and that sort of thing. So a bit of money being lent backwards and forwards, a bit of a sort of client or otherwise. So do we see much blowback from Sargon's troubles leaking through towards growth ops? So there's a couple of different aspects to that. Uh TGO had loaned money to Sargon and in an ASX announcement that went out this week, uh, CEO Clint Cooper said they were going to do their best to recoup as much of that as they could. And this was money as a loan or money for services provided? Or do we it was a money, that was specifically it was money as a loan, but TGO was also the provider of fintech to Sargon, which in that kind of back and forth we saw some staffers going across from TGO to Sargon in the last round of TGO redundancies 
it's not really sure what's going to happen to those staffers now. I believe they are still at Sargon, but I don't know how long that'll last as the, com- as the business is currently in administration. So it's worth mentioning that the, uh, the, the board of, or the auditors of TGO, um, Growth Ops, TGO used to stand for Tremantium Growth Ops. Now it's just a kind of a weird, a weird code on the ASX, I suppose, because people rarely use the word Tremantium anymore. But they sent the, the auditors sent the signal that they, they were not totally confident that totally confident they could continue as a going concern. So that was one of those standard warnings they gave some months back. And in the last few days as well, we had the sort of quarterly update, which from the board, which was, Again, more net cash went out than went in. So another 1.4 million went out of the door. Um, and the question then becomes what, what happens when they fully draw down the, um, 14 million dollars, which Westpac has, um, has lent to them, which by the end of December, by the end of December on December 31, they'd drawn down 12.8 million of that. So the question becomes, particularly if Sargon ends up um, owing us some money, um, how much financial pressure does that put on TGO? And then I guess what makes it back and relevant to the media and marketing world again is, is does that mean that some of the assets are up for play? Could we possibly see AJF up for sale, for instance? Well, a lot of people have said that perhaps that's the avenue they're going to go down because they've already started spinning pieces off. So Lightfold, which was their Salesforce Einstein business, which they kind of acquired the entire team and business and now they're just passing it on as an entire team and business so not much change seemed to happen to it and it's when that kind of happened people were like oh maybe this is what they're going to do they're going to take anything that's still got worth inside the growth ops business and spin it out into its own thing so maybe we will maybe we will see some of those smaller pieces come out into independence no viv um it was the two of us who chatted to philip kingston was it last year? Has it time was. flown as much as that? Uh, if you don't want to be a pedant, we could even say it was last decade, Tim, that we spoke to Kingston. Uh, the new decade hasn't started yet? <laughs> yeah. yeah, 2021 will be wild, but it was indeed in 2019 when we spoke to Philip Kingston. Now, at that point, he was very confident that all was well. Well, I think part of his job uh, was to project the perception that all was well you know it's a company that he founded and was spruiking to the market and to the industry it would have been an ill-advised move for him to come on the umbrella cast and say it's all going to shit tim you're you've been right all along so he was confident that it was going to work but even in the short term i think there were signals that he had a difficult road ahead of him. I remember him saying that they were facing huge problems, not because the structure didn't work and not because it was a flawed strategy, but because the market couldn't get its head around what he was trying to offer and the market didn't understand the level of innovation and the level of entrepreneurial skill set that he was bringing. Surely if the market decides the value of your business and the market can't understand your business. You have a communications problem. If if nothing else, you have a communications no, problem. I, I suppose that is one of the challenges, isn't it? Because I, I, I found myself thinking about the similarly challenged pure profile where it always felt like the, the founder who's now long gone, but Paul Chan there always had this really clear picture in his head of what it could be. And every now and then I'd almost sort of get to what it was and it was, you know, it was all around um, knowing more about what people were doing on, on, on the web and serving them appropriate marketing messages, but in quite a clever way. 
and he just never quite got the vision out there. And I just wonder if it's the same thing. The vision might be good. It might be the execution that's the problem. Well, Nick Jones, who was the most recent CEO of Pure Profile, who also left last year, he did say that one of Pure Profile's biggest problems was that it can't effectively communicate what it does. And he would constantly say and issue market updates saying, you know, we're going to turn things around. And the way that we're going to turn things around is to properly communicate the benefit of our business. A lot of people actually do give Nick Jones props for starting that process. I think Trimantium was even, or Growth Ops, was even more complex than that one because it's a really unusual company name. At least Pure Profile, it does what it says on the packaging. You know, like they're trying to get a pure picture of the profile of people who are using the internet and then people set up profiles and it's all very profile-based. Nobody knew what... Trimantium was indeed. I think we had Philip explain it on the podcast yes. previously. Now I can't remember. It, it it was a sort of accidental Star Wars reference as well, wasn't it? Or was it Star Trek? I do not recall. Uh, what I would say about that is it's clearly something that Philip Kingston was passionate use the about. Force, Harry, because he did you just say use the Force, Harry? I feel like even as someone who's not across that, that's the incorrect quote, but I feel like that's the gag. Uh, it was the one moment in the interview where Philip Kingston was really animated was when he was explaining the company name. At all other times he was quite reserved, quite tentative in answering our questions. And when you asked him to explain the background of Trimantium Growth Ops, that's when he got excited. So perhaps that was also one of the flaws in that the name meant a lot to him and got him really excited. But to everybody else, you've got an agency that's so well known in AJF partnership absorbed into a company that nobody understands and nobody can articulate. I do find myself wondering with AJF whether we'll see, for instance, the founders buying it back out in much of the way, same way that the the guys from BWM bought out BWM out of the the photon uh, process, gosh, a decade ago, you know. So I I kind of figure that there's a, there's a couple of sort of chips still in play, regardless of what the wider growth ops does. So Tim, are you predicting the sort of dismantling of TGO? Um, I guess you hit you hit a point where the board has to decide if it can keep going, and they've got a duty to do that. And then, of course. If they decide it can't, then those assets go in different ways, you know. So it could be someone actually just decides to buy it off the ASX and take on the debt and everything else. You know, someone was wildly speculating to me the other day that Martin Sorrell was going to do that. Oh. Um, I think the, uh, the the share price at the moment values it in the market, uh, I think, just over $20 million or something like, like that. But, of course, it also comes with that $14 million um, debt as well. So... I guess add those two things together and you've got an enterprise value of 34 million or something. Yeah, I'm just looking at the uh, ASX now. And so share prices back in 2018 got up sort of close to $1.50, $1.40. It's now down at 14 cents and they've got a market capitalization of 19.45 million. Yeah. And when people invested, they invested at a dollar. So every person who's, so it's now 14 cents. So every person who invested has lost 86 cents for every dollar they've invested. As Philip Kingston said on the podcast, though, they haven't lost that money unless they try and cash out. So. In his uh, strong financial advice, as long as you don't cash out, you haven't 
lost anything yet. Well, that is true. And I'm sure that if someone did try and do a takeover, it would it would put the price up a bit. I'd, I'd be very surprised if it got back up to a dollar, though. Next, Ben Lilly is back at McCann. So the former CEO of McCann Australia, Ben Lilly, has returned to triumphantly, one assumes, to the agency to actually become its owner. Uh, he's bought it from Interpublic Group, um, the very organisation he sold his own agency to back in 2011 when, uh, when Smart was bought by the McCann Group and effectively in some sort of magical reverse takeover became, uh, became McCann and he, he, he then ran that organization. So, Viv, big, big name and says something really interesting when a global group is actually effectively willing to turn away from Australia. Yeah. It, it, it's sort of mixed signals in that a global group is willing to turn away from Australia and offload that to essentially one person. But you could look at it in the reverse where somebody who's worked there, seen all the good, the bad, the ugly, believes in it enough to buy it. So Ben Lilly left as CEO back at the beginning of 2018 uh, and was relocating to France with his family. So I'm not sure what became of that, but he's had two years to think about it, do other things, and, you know, he's willing to buy an agency. That's no small task. So he must believe that there's something in it or something he can do with it. Well, he, I remember him sending the signal a while back that he was on the acquisition trail because he came and spoke at Sage, our kind of industry event on running good agencies. And he was very much, you know, there, he was on stage, but he sort of made it clear he was looking for opportunities to invest in things. So he obviously, he got a good amount when he sold Smart to McCann. So he obviously thinks that there's more he can do with it that the McCann have. And they obviously think, look, you know, this is the guy to do it. So presumably there's an arrangement that works for both of them. We don't have the numbers, but, I mean, it would be fascinating to know how the structure of him buying it back is working, given that he sold his agency, as you said, smart to them. He was then CEO. Now he's buying it back in a different form. Well, that's a great point because that's almost exactly going back to the BWM point was what happened there. They they sold it to Photon for a fair old chunk, but when Photon couldn't pay them the next tranche, they got to buy it back for tuppence halfpenny. So I suspect he didn't pay as much for it as he sold it for. I would also really like to know who approached who in this environment because if McCann wanted rid of it, he on paper would seem like a really good person to pick it up because, as you said, he was on the acquisition trail. He obviously cared about it while he worked there. So if you're saying, oh, look, we want to get rid of it, you're here, you're looking for something, why don't you take it over, or whether he approached them, I would really love to know the ins and outs on how that broke down because also if they approached him, surely that puts him in a really good position to cut a deal. I reckon we should get Ben on the podcast, shouldn't we? Get him to answer these questions instead of us wildly speculating ben, about what cons- went down. consider yourself invited. Next, who wins when the three reality TV juggernauts crash into each other? So the three commercial television networks each launched one of their big flagship reality formats this week. 
For Seven, it was My Kitchen Rules, although with a slightly new format, The Rivals. And they did it on Sunday night up against the Australian Open men's final over on Nine. Meanwhile, for Nine on Monday night, it was Married at First Sight, returning for its unbelievable seventh season. I can't believe we've had as many as that already. Uh, launching on Monday night, uh, and that was up against um, Ten's Australian Survivor first of two seasons for 2020, uh, which was Survivor All-Stars. Now, last week, um, there was a bit of, uh, bit of guesstimates on, um, how all the shows would do. And now, Hannah, we have the answer. We do. And I think, I can't say I've gone back and checked, but I'm pretty sure we were bang on it. So, of course we were. <laughs> so if you look at MKR specifically, um, as you said, it came in on the Sunday, went up against the men's final, which was a really questionable decision. Uh, it drew 498,000, which is down 39% on 2019, but 57% on 2018. Comparatively, the tennis did 1.52 million. Uh, Tens I'm a Celebrity finished up that night as well for 800,000. These are all Metro viewers. Um, so out of those, very easily a significant loss for seven there. The problem is for seven, it didn't get better when it didn't go up against the tennis. So obviously the next night, nine came in with maths, which following off the success of 2019, we thought it would probably be a pretty good year for them. And it was uh, 1.15 million Metro for the launch. That's the biggest ever launch for maths. And as you said, that's on its seventh season. So it's not early in the run comparatively australian survivor did 624 on that night which is down on 29 and 2018 but as 10 are very quick to point out we're not looking at the similar a similar situation you know 2019 and 2018 were july june launches which is when survivors usually on this is the first of two seasons this year and they've decided to lead into it now this is a good moment to talk about survivor it's also a good moment to let brit temporarily leave the room <laughs> as we have two minutes of spoilers Bye. Um, so um, i should also say that this is the first season that i have slash will watch i said to hannah on monday should i should i watch and she's like yeah i'm like do i need any backstory and she's like no and i watched one episode i'm like yeah that was great <laughs> i'm right. not good enough to well, watch last night though i come, was at a trivia night come, come back in three minutes hover near the door and then we'll get okay, straight back into the rest of the sign. tv we will let's geek out a little bit about survivor just for a minute i know it's indulgent because you know we're talking about it as viewers rather than things but wasn't it good the first three episodes have you seen anything as good as that no i have not and i have watched all seasons of survivor so um oh, by the way spoilers ahead oh yeah spoilers <laughs> ahead uh so vivian and i went to lunch earlier in the week with uh tens beverly mcgarvey rod prosser and paul anderson and they all said Episode three is the one. Episode three is going to be incredible. The promos, though, weren't quite as full on as 10 can usually go for a promo. And I thought we were restrained for 10, but it was just, it was so much better than I was expecting. They pulled off every kind of blind side that they had tried to pull off. It all worked. It was scripted perfectly. And it was great acting, yeah. wasn't there? Like just in the, in the challenge, you know, the sort of the. Like it's re for someone who's who, who's not a viewer, it's almost impossible to explain the it dynamics, is. isn't it? But you've got team leaders basically kind of double-crossing their own teams, in some ways definitely double-crossing their own teams, not sure whether to trust each other, yes. having to then 
act to the extent you're almost worried they're fooling each yes. other as well. Um, lots of twists and turns. Yeah, it was. And it was just incredible TV. And I'm actually, I'm when I looked at the ratings this morning, although I knew maths, obviously, I mean, in the three days it's been on, it hasn't dropped below a million metro yet. And I know it's so hard to go up against that. Dancing with the Stars tried it for 10 last year. Survivor's doing slightly better numbers at this point. It's just, it. <laughs> I was almost disappointed when I saw the numbers this morning because I was like, oh God, if it's such a good episode though. Well, look, I reckon we finished the spoiler. So let's let Brit come back in. So Brit is now back in the room and putting her headphones back on. So we won't say any more about what <laughs> happened in that episode. But you make a really good point, Hannah, because it felt like justice demanded a slightly better ratings for it. Um, but that's the thing. It's so much is about expectations and everyone kind of assumes that Married at First Sight will come top. Yeah. Um, everyone assumed, I think, that MKR would do better. They certainly didn't expect it to come fifth in its time slot. Well, I think part of the problem with MKR is not only is it a really ageing format, but My Kitchen Rules viewers, I think, have been really, really, really conditioned over the years to watch that program on the back of the Australian Open. So for years, Seven had the tennis rights and broadcast the Australian Open and they had those absurdly annoying commercials in between the change of ends or even just in between points where (laughs) and luckily nine didn't fall to that temptation (laughs) where a screen would pop out between the court and they'd sort of pretend it was the umpire educating the the crowd on on mkr and then they'd say time straight after the tennis and now that they don't have the tennis and the big bash league isn't pulling the numbers that the tennis did for seven mkr just doesn't have the same promos and lead in to draw people to watch it they've been watching the tennis and they're ready for maths yeah and i think when you look at mkr's ratings last year didn't do great for it either and that speaks to that as well obviously nine's first year with the ao was last year so i do think you're right i think um mkr has benefited a lot from being off the back of the tennis i think What Seven probably hoped with this is, as you mentioned at the beginning, Tim, it's a new format. They've slightly switched it up. I did watch an episode the other day just to kind of, so I had a little bit of, I was more than just a Survivor fan. Um, And yeah. You also watched Math, an episode of Math. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I saw you watching that on work time the other day. (laughs) I don't just have it on my main screen and not do anything else. (laughs) Was that so that you could educate us on the podcast about what's happening? No, no, I just felt like, I felt like all I can bring to the conversation is, hey guys, Survivor is great. Why aren't you watching it? Um, So I thought maybe I should watch something else. And I will admit on this podcast, Married at First Sight was fantastic. And I'm definitely going to keep watching it. I, I had already watched, I think, the first two episodes and Hannah sent me a message on slack about three minutes in saying i would die for these people i love maps <laughs> I'm, I'm already hooked. that's how easy i am to get one over but um i think my kitchen rules if you weren't already a fan you probably wouldn't come in for this season um it's very geared towards existing fans i think and i think that is dangerous when as viv said usually those fans are used to okay cool we watch the open and then we go straight into mkr were they going to switch over for the first episode from the men's final? Probably not. But then you've got to make a decision to watch it on catch up and then off you go. Well, let's reframe it for the media agency world. Um, Britt, what do you think the market wants from the big three networks and the big three franchises this year? Well, when we were talking about it in the lead up to Upfront, there were the kind of uh, very diplomatic 
responses that they wanted consistency. I think nine nine have the most to lose. And so I don't think anyone's surprised that nine's doing so well. Seven almost had the most ground to make up in that they admitted very openly, we haven't been perfect. We've stuffed up. We need to do a lot better and a lot more. So coming off of that admission and saying 2020 is going to be that year, you're going to have you know, one place as, as they, the tagline was. I That think, was when they hoped to have Prime as yes, well, though, wasn't it? It is. <laughs> uh, so I think, I, I, I think that off the, off the blocks, Seven is the most disappointing, I would say, because they, they were very open about the fact that, you know, if it's them V9 as kind of the big two and 10 is already the underdog or the network that plays for the younger audience um, that Seven need to do better. I think they would have had with MKR a better chance up against MasterChef given MasterChef has new judges this year. People are already uncertain about it. People are uncertain about whether or not they're big enough names or whether or not they can do what Matt, Gary and George did, which is grow as the franchise grows but the franchise is already so big would that have just been really disrespectful by the tv industry of viewers who like cooking shows to put the two cooking shows on head to head because you know we always we talk about tv cannibalizing itself that would be the ultimate cannibalization wouldn't it perhaps i mean i guess i don't i don't know do do master chef lovers also love mkr i don't know um when I when I watched MasterChef, I wasn't into MKR, but perhaps I mean I'm certainly not um, representative of everyone. So yeah, I think I I feel like out of the three shows we're talking about, nine and uh, ten definitely ahead in terms of what's exciting, what's unexpected, what's dramatic. I mean, and it's interesting because it's not just that. MKR is the oldest format, I think, as Hannah mentioned earlier. I mean, MAFS is in its seventh season, but somehow in the last couple of years has had like a really a, a reinvigoration of sorts where suddenly it was like everyone was into it rather than it just being another, you know, niche reality dating show. Yeah, I must admit, when I read out seventh in the script, I thought, oh, is that a typo? I was actually surprised myself there. Um, so, Hannah, for seven, a lot now hangs on Big Brother, really, doesn't it? Well, Pooch Perfect, I think you're forgetting, primarily. How could I have forgotten Pooch Perfect? <laughs> if you've been watching the BBL, you could not humanly forget Pooch Perfect because it's literally on like maths was on during the AO. Um, yeah, they've got – I mean, there's so many things coming this year from Seven. If we remember back to the upfronts, there was Pooch Perfect, there was Big Brother, there was Mega Mini Golf. Some sort of sporting event in July. I don't I don't <laughs> think that's happening anymore. But <laughs> Sonia Kruger is there. She's hosting most of them. So I think Seven still has a really great, a potentially really great slate ahead of them. And I think even people at other networks are admitting that they're frothing to see Mega Mini Golf Australia. Well, I mean, everyone... Everyone after the upfronts was like, that is what I'm excited about. That is going to be great. And for there to be that much confidence in it before one episode is even aired, I don't think anyone would deny that that has huge potential. It does need a good lead in though. You know, if people get 
out of the habit of watching Seven and I know that it's 2020 and it's a new decade and it's very easy to change the channel and watch on Catch Up, but if you're just out of the habit of watching Seven and you're not seeing the promos for it and people aren't talking about it, but it won't get the numbers that it needs. Mass Singer for 10 last year. 10 was not having a great lead year last year. Yes, it got better in the second half of the year. And yes, Mass Singer came in after Survivor, which had its best year last year. But the numbers that Mass Singer managed last year, it was above the million point, which for 10, it's been a while in the making. And I think the reason people are so keen on Mega Mini Golf is because it's playing into that same audience it's playing into that mastering audience that lego masters audience that ninja audience it's fun family viewing as people love to keep telling us i think even if some of the other formats maybe struggle i don't have that much confidence in big brother i think mega mini golf can do it but also do we know where it's going to land on the slate yet well i I don't. I'm sure the CEO of Seven James Warburton <laughs> does and they're as yet to be appointed chief content officer. But I had a question yes, about... No, that's been going on for a while. <laughs> well, now that you mentioned that, that has been a while, hasn't it? Yes. So my understanding was that the chief content officer was meant to be appointed in around October last year uh, with the new structure where there's around eight people feeding into CEO James Warburton. Uh they have appointed a chief marketing officer in Charlotte Valente and the chief content officer was meant to come quite soon after that and it just hasn't. So we have this sort of chart from Seven explaining the new structure under James and it's sort of just it's just blank. And well, I guess not- the other issue with the org chart as well was they had they obviously had chief digital officer in um uh, Gerard, Gerard yes, yeah. who, who'd been running Pacific magazines and they hoped to sell them to Bauer, but that that hasn't happened. So do we know if Gerard is doing two jobs at once? I suspect... Brittany, you're nodding. <laughs> I have read he is, yes. He is, he is <laughs> juggling both, apparently. I, I suspect he is, uh, but at the same time, I think Seven is fairly confident that it will be able to offload Pacific magazines. To someone. To someone at some point. So... I don't want to say they're completely just letting it flail about and do nothing. But you're going to heavily imply it? But I think that Gerard is probably focused on being chief digital officer of of Seven. I think they've decided they don't want pack mags. They've got a deal. They they just want to get it across the line. I don't think he'd be spending – when Seven wants to invest so much more in its digital strategy and it's got so many other digital properties to worry about – why would you be spending time bolstering and fixing an asset that you're trying to get rid of? So I was away when the ACCC sort of raised the questions. Is is the vibe we get from the market that they will Bauer will get to buy it in the end and it's just a bit of a hurdle to be jumped across? Or is it that, um, that Bauer aren't going to get to do it? No, the vibe I'm getting from people who I've spoken to is that they don't think the deal's going to go through. And they think even if some of the issues the ACCC has voiced can be fixed, the others cannot be fixed. Well, I mean, the the main issue or the cons- the main concern from the ACCC, right, is a pretty fundamental one, which is an issue of competition. And well, there's not much they can do to allay that concern, I don't think. Well, I suppose one of the issues, because everyone always argues that the ACCC should look more widely, not just competition in that medium. But yeah, absolutely, if they say that all they're looking at is competition in magazines... 
Yeah, well, it's not even just it's not even just for consumers. It's for journalists. It's for photographers. It's for photo agencies. That's it's right. For, there was the photo. Was it Getty who raised Getty the or, issue? Getty have allegedly uh, put forward something that says that if it does go through, their business is going to be sliced in half, which I think is one of the main concerns. Um, at this stage, I can't really see how Pacific or Bauer are going to get around that. But I think you're right. I think whether this deal isn't the one that goes through, I think James is going to find a way to get rid of them somehow. Well, the other thing that the ACCC was concerned about was the quality of the content. Uh, so it flagged concerns. Well, the that- upscot shots of Prince Philip. Well, yes. I mean, you may scoff, but ACCC Chair Rod Sims is concerned it could get even worse. Is it possible? <laughs> I, the more I hear about Rod Sims, the more I like him. I love Rod Sims. Can so, he come on the Mumbrella class, please? Yeah, add him to the invite list as well. <laughs> so the ACCC flagged that without sort of competing with each other to four eyeballs on the newsstands and for those headlines and for those stories, the quality of content being offered to consumers in magazines will decline because they won't be trying to secure that dollar or, or having to fight someone else for a better story and they'll employ less people and standards will drop and all of that. So the ACCC says it's looking at that rather than James Warburton and Bauer would probably argue you should look at the entire media market because the likes of Who Magazine and NW and New Idea make t- make up such a small proportion of what's consumed and a small proportion of the ad market that you shouldn't worry about us. Also, Bauer um, made it really clear that they don't believe that that is an issue considering you can go online and find free gossip anywhere all over the internet, left, right, and center. So their argument is the quality can't drop because then consumers will just stop buying, um, which I don't think that speaks to either of those sides. I think Bauer is actually pretty convinced the deal's still going to go through. I just think maybe on Seven's side they've realized the writing's on the wall. I think externally they have been, definitely. And their argument is also, well, if you care about magazines and you care about the health of the magazine industry, you will let this go through because this is what the magazine industry needs to actually prosper rather than kind of struggle as it has been. I suppose one of the issues, though, regulator in New Zealand, similar thing happening on newspapers, that was the warning. They still said no, and then the predictions very broadly came true. Now, just uh, sticking with television for a moment, or going back to television, TV ad spend. We sort of knew this was coming, but the revenues really were pretty rotten last year. Yeah, uh, TV revenue dropped 5.9%. But again, a lot of this is, you know, it's a tough market. They definitely saw this coming. They definitely, this isn't a surprise. We also, if we look at the SMI data ad spend in the calendar year was back 5.3%. Yeah, so to be clear, this, these are the actual numbers that have now been released by Think TV. So it's definitively, uh, so that covers both agency spend and direct spend, whereas the SMI numbers, which was showing up that 5.3 is just sort of out of agencies. So effectively, it seems to suggest that, yeah, things were bad across the way, across, across the board. Metro and regional, direct spend and agency spend. I think that's what you can pull from this. I think even though all these reports kind of look at slightly different areas, if you look at almost everybody, they're all reporting pretty crappy revenues across the board. I think outdoor probably performed the best, but beyond that, everybody's reporting pretty bad revenue. So there's definitely no escaping 
how tough the market is. And I think there's also therefore no easy place to put the blame or to say, oh, but this industry is doing the worst or this department's doing the worst because I think almost everybody seems to be suffering. Well, let me just for a moment be TV's PR person to put the the positive spin that they would want out there as well is that, I mean, Kim Portrait, the CEO of Think TV, did say like, this problem isn't exclusive to television. It's reflective of not just the media industry but the wider Australian economy and the hesitation in consumers and brands to spend at the moment. I mean, that's a problem that's with the bushfires and the coronavirus is just going to get worse and worse because Australia relies so much on tourism and on foreign students coming here and a lot of students now can't come here. So we're just going to take hit after hit after hit. But they were keen to promote that for the 12 months to December 2019, the TV market was down 4.8% and for that six months uh, at the end of last year, it was down 5.9%. But BVOD, which they all love to talk about, was Broadcast video on demand. Correct. So platforms like 10Play, 9Now and 7Plus, that saw an increase of 38.9% in ad spend for the 12 months of last year. So, again, it's operating off a much smaller base. So cynics would say it's easier for it to record, you know, growth, Mm. but they, they are very keen to say that BVOD's growing in the face of very tough market conditions. It does seem jarring though, doesn't it, talking about local TV being on Struggle Street when this week we've also had the Super Bowl, including ads of like over 5 million US for a 30-second spot and people still trumpeting that TV is how to reach people. So, I mean, I think that people locally are still hoping that that rings true here as well, but it's hard to see, as Viv said, how the next 12 months could be the bright spot that we hoped for when externally we've still got those sorts of factors really impacting the economy. We just don't have a Super Bowl moment in television. And so often when Australian TV execs and advertising execs are trying to promote something, they'll try and capitalise on that language and say, you know, we're going to turn this into our Super Bowl moment. Could be Tokyo 2020. We're going to make the (laughs) AFL grand final. Australia's Super Bowl moment, but it's just not. That's a really good point, though, isn't it? Opening ceremony, Japan Olympics, uh, the right time zone. That could be it this year, couldn't it? Well, it could be if brands are willing to invest in the creative campaign and, you know, the, the celebrity cameos and all of the things that come with that. And then Seven, which is broadcasting the Olympics, you know, schedules its ads in an appropriate way and has the build-up. Australians aren't... What would be the Australian equivalent of rebooting Groundhog Day? Oh, uh, I don't know. The Perhaps castle. The, I was going to say the yeah, castle. The you'd, castle. Have to, you'd have to do something Right, how do we that? copyright that? Quick, <laughs> before Domain gets onto yes. it. <laughs> yes, we said it first. Also, I just looked up the viewership of the Super Bowl it is significantly down on earlier years, by mm. the way, but it's also 99 million viewers, and that's just Metro and then 148. Well, yeah, you think America about the US population. Yes, America <laughs> is the takeaway. <laughs> the takeaway here, America is big. At its peak, it was like 115 million Metro viewers. 
It's crazy. But the thing is, broadcast TV isn't as big as it was, but it's still massive. If you're a marketer, what else would you do? We just aren't in the habit, though, as Australians, of watching ads in the same way that Americans are conditioned to watch ads and look forward to ads in the Super Bowl. So if Seven wants to create that moment with Tokyo 2020, it's got to start executing quite a large behaviour change campaign now because you can't expect that people are going to be ready and just it'll work if you do it guerrilla style. You'll have to sort of notify consumers, hey, stick around and it'll be entertaining viewing. It's not time to go and make a cup of tea. Next, Silence of the Carl. So if you watch the premiere of Married at First Sight and you might have detected that some people in this room have a passing interest, you'd have been treated to quite a different promo from Nine's usual style for today. Um... Viv, I'm going to ask you to describe the. Well, in fact, no, let's let's we'll we'll play the promo. This year. Good morning, Carl. So, it's you and me. Good morning, Ali. You better get used to those early mornings again. I've missed the smell of morning coffee. Breakfast television. <sighs> Gets juicy. Apparently, I've been a very naughty boy. This time, Carl, things are going to be different. I want my old dressing room back. They gave it to me. No. Everyone's watching, Carl. Are you going to behave? Well, you're just going to have to trust me. Alan Alley on a brand new today, weekdays. So, Viv, that was Carl and Alley nodding back towards Silence of the Lambs, your verdict? It's confronting viewing would be be my verdict. Every time I watch it, and indeed when you, Tim, do the Carl Stefanovic impression oh, you're asking for him to do no, it now no, why I'm have you asking. done this i was about to say which, which impression is that i'm like? not no we're not we're not treating our audiences to that but it it's just it's it's really really full on and previously today had done some promos really pushing their serious journalism credentials and throughout the australian open they had some ads that sort of showed that it could it could be serious and it could help bring Australian breakfast TV viewers, you know, the news that they need and in the face of the bushfire crisis and whatnot. But then this tactic for the maths audience was very much playing on the old larrikin Carl, but in quite a creepy way. <laughs> I, I came in on Tuesday morning and I'd seen the promo in maths and I was like, has anyone seen this? It was so weird. And it was because it the criticism of bringing Carl back is that he's too much of a larrikin, too unpredictable, and it felt like by really pushing, no, he's also a serious journalist, he can do a good job, that they were really trying to separate him from that. But now they've lent right back into it and it's like, are you going to be a naughty boy, Carl? Like... 
it's not going to be boring. Uh, breakfast TV's gotten juicy. But Britt, you're completely ignoring the fact that several weeks ago, just before Carl returned, we said the only way today will ever overtake Sunrise in the ratings is if Carl gets this absolutely wasted at the Logies again, turns up the next morning, and they bring a flock of seagulls in for him to chase. <laughs> this like, is true. We're begging for that, Carl. Surely everyone else is doing that too. I wonder, though, whether some of it as well is – see, as soon as I saw that promo – I thought, oh, brilliant. And, you know, I, I know the scene. But then I had to do the maths and then double check the maths because to a horrible shock, apparently this is nearly a 40 year old film in Silence of the Lambs, um, which was quite the, the cultural shock. But it's, it's a very, very amusing cultural reference. Do you think the fact that a chunk of the audience, now, clearly the film's been on again in the past. Just, just to, have I got my maths wrong? Just to correct you, Tim, because... <laughs> I had a feeling as I was saying it, I might have my maths because wrong. Because if Silence of the Lambs is almost 40, then I'm almost 40, so I'll just uh, correct you there. It's from 1991, meaning uh, it's almost 30. Right, that was where I got my maths wrong. <laughs> I did know it was 1991, but I got that bit wrong. See, I reckon today's got a little bit of a problem at the moment because, yeah, you're right, they're using a promo which is quoting from a 30-year-old movie... We discovered, I think it was the last Mumbrella cast, that Brittany had never seen Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, you're welcome to say that I watched the promo, did not get the reference, (laughs) came in and described it. Nana's like, that's Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) But then the other day they had on (laughs) Queensland punk band The Chats, who performed, who sat fairly high up in the Hottest 100 and performed their song Pub Feed to a bewildered Carl (laughs) Stefanovic, who clearly had no idea who they were, although did end the interview with... There you go. If these guys hit it big, you know where you saw them first, which was such a bold choice. Breakfast Television does that a lot, though. That's not exclusive to Nine or Today. They often pick up on cultural trends that are like at least six months old and they're like, there's this brand new fandangled thing where you can have a phone that's mobile. Koshi will bring it to you next. That's true. (laughs) I remember Sunrise promo the other day for ASMR and they were like, this incredible new internet trend. (laughs) About three years ago, there was a Super Bowl commercial done entirely in ASMR, so... Probably not. I, I remember once um, going on sunrise, either Sunrise or the morning show and you kind of sit under the stairs in their sort of green room that isn't really a green room. It's a bit like being to Harry Potter, really. And there are some very polite young men who are also there and there's like four you know, fans against the window and they turned out to be five seconds of summer who became quite big later. <laughs> <laughs> and those polite young men were One Direction. <laughs> Tim's brush with fame. <laughs> in my defence, it was very early in their career. Was it though, or was it just early in their career in the eyes of Sunrise <laughs> viewers, Tim? Because that—that's my point. That they come to these things very late, but perhaps you know these things are new to the people who like to watch. I think Carl what we're saying is Carl is now, or well, again today's Koshi, and we want him to lean into the dad personality is that what we're saying i think we're saying we don't really understand what today is doing but i think we might like it (laughs) yeah look you gotta come up with a new promo every week cut my break and also this might be one of our final points promos how good are they at the moment like across all of the networks, there are some really great promos out there. You were you were uh, complimenting the Dancing with the Stars promos. Oh, they are very good. Cool. They are very good. Yeah, I think Ten are doing some great promos at the moment. I tried to find those and I couldn't. So what's so good about them? 
Oh, they're just very, I reckon to be fair, and I reckon this became really apparent after the upfronts, 10 is spectacular at a sizzle reel and they're really great at a promo. I don't know how they're doing it better than everyone else, but I think they are. And their promos at the moment for Dancing with the Stars are giving you just enough. They're not hitting you over the head with all the, oh, they can't dance. It's hilarious stuff. They're playing up the emotion of it. It's a lot of like really showy, over-the-top, sparkly outfits. And I watched one the other day and was like, oh, God, I'm going to have to watch Dancing with the Stars, aren't I? So I just, yeah, they're doing something right. Well, I think that might be where we leave it. But before we go... I'd just like to tell you about Mumbrella's Automotive Marketing Summit in Melbourne on March the 17th. All tickets purchased before Tuesday, that's February the 11th, for those listening out there in podcast land, will save $100. Top brands confirmed on the starting grid, see what we did there with our automotive reference, include Mercedes-Benz vans, Amazon Web Services, Google Australia, and the latest heavyweight freshly confirmed on the bill is the Director of Marketing Communications from Formula One, who'll be flying in all the way from London. So if you want to drive your marketing to new heights in 2020 there's no better place to be go to mumbella.com.au forward slash automotive melbourne for further details that is all from us for this week thank you hannah thank you thank you viv thank you thank you Brittany. thanks toodle pip